Good evening. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Today, our guest is Karen Bates of the Philo Apple Farm. And this is the first of several programs that we're going to be focusing on farming, farming in the soil. Um, and I really hope that you enjoy this series. Uh, a lot of it has some some surprising ramifications. In just a moment, Karen will be with us and share what she's up to at the Philo Apple Farm. But in the meantime, remember that you can find us on Facebook. We always post our upcoming programs and uh, copies of our uh, previous shows, so you can listen there as well as on KBMF. You can also email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. I'm Carol Murphy, your host. Clark Grant is in the studio, and in just a moment, Karen will be with us. Thanks for listening. Hello again, this is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Our guest today is Karen Bates of the Apple Farm in Philo, California. Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for being our guest today on Heartstock. Really looking forward to um, hearing all about the Apple Farm. Um, this is no ordinary Apple Farm. Can you please just give our guests a brief introduction here? about your family farm? Well, it's uh, 37 acres along the Navarro River in Mendocino County, which is somewhat notorious for being part of the Emerald Triangle, but uh, in the past was also uh, mostly sheep logging and uh, farming, a lot of Italian homesteads up in the hills. So it's a beautiful small community contained by the ridges on both sides of a little coastal influence. We get foggy mornings, but hot afternoons. So really a perfect climate for growing apples. And that's what brought us, what brought us was really the place. What brought us to this piece of property was the fact that it was a hundred year old or close to it at the time, apple orchard um, that had been severely neglected, um, which made it affordable for us or barely anyway. Um, so we were really attracted to the land itself. And then, of course, the problem was to figure out how we could make a living in this uh, small, rural, depressed um, county. Mm-hmm. And when did you acquire the apple farm, which it sounds like it was already, it, it, had, it had quite a history by the time that your family became stewards yeah, the, the farm, the original trees were planted uh, in 1910, which makes them over 100 years old now, and owned by, you know, only a few families, I think, over time, and a lot of different things happened. They we're right on the river, unfortunately. The very large barn, which was down by the river, is no longer there. We, we always wish we were one of those farms with those big abandoned barns that nobody uses, because we really need one. But um, by the time we got it, it was a very rundown apple orchard that was just um, pretty much picked on a on a bumper year and in between was neglected. And it was also a farm, the buildings were being used for a farm labor camp. 
so uh, very run down and really apples, you know, the, the uh, market for apples also very depressed. And uh, we were coming from Napa Valley where, you know, everything is being converted. Napa Valley had many, many small farms with prunes and, you know, quite diverse in the old days, prunes, apples, all kinds of things. And um, it was really heading for, you know, that monoculture grape scene that we have now. And we really wanted to live a, a life that was a little more complex than that, which is what brought us up here to Anderson Valley. And what year was that, Karen? Not, that was 1984. Gotcha. Okay, so tell us a little bit about what you did before you were the um, the caretaker there and owner of the apple farm. A little bit of history about yourself, maybe, and your family. Well, I grew up in uh, the Central Valley. My mom was uh, grew up in Citrus Heights, went to Davis. My dad grew up in Visalia, which was a farming community, um, went to Davis in Berkeley. That's where my parents met. And we lived in the Central Valley. My dad was a banker, but mostly worked on farms, helping people figure out what to do with their farms when someone passed away. So we were very connected to the farming community in that way and very interested in it. So when an opportunity came my mom and dad had five kids. I was the second from the top. When when number five came along, we had this opportunity to take up a project in Napa Valley. And that was in Yauntville in the very early days. So that was a big winery complex that was being converted to shops and restaurants. Just the fledgling stages, a lot of it was, you know, very run down and really crumbling. So uh, my parents picked up stakes and moved to uh, Yauntville, and there was a house there on the property that we were able to move into and live on the 20 acres. It was right in the middle of Yauntville. And, you know, I was 12. My sister was 13. The youngest was one. And there was a little cafe on the property, and we, um, you know, everybody did everything. We we immediately started washing dishes in the cafe, and my mom took over the um management of that cafe. Eventually, she built her own restaurant there. Um, My dad was in charge of buildings, renovation. Uh, My parents were in charge of finding tenants. And this was back in the 60s. So, you know, really what they ended up doing, their, their vision was that they would have a place that was really something that would make the community strong and that tourists would would come and enjoy it, but really they wanted it well balanced for the community. So to that end, we ended up with a a bookstore, a leather store, a wine shop, a pottery shop, a sausage maker, a shoe man, um, a clothing store, a basket shop. Um, it was an amazing collection of tenants. And for us, moving from Fresno, you know, in a in a suburban kind of environment, it was such an amazing thing to be sitting in the middle of the vineyard and have the freedom of this old rundown winery property and all the activities that went on and also all the amazing people that we that my parents brought into the mix to create this vintage eighteen seventy it was called. So that was an amazing education for us. All kinds of very interesting people. We were much more interested in what was going on at home than we were at school at that point. Yes, it sounds amazing. And then 
tell us about the transition to the the apple farm. Well, there's a lot of chapters there. So yeah. we went from we went from vintage 1870, which was my parents just had a managing interest. We we didn't have any money to invest, and they went through a couple of business partners, investors, and finally decided that they they were worn out trying to find somebody who had money who also had the same vision. Everybody wanted to turn it into a large tourist attraction. And they were really against that, even though it was extremely popular as a tourist attraction. Their goal was always to make it for the community first. And so they moved from there and opened a restaurant down the street in a building that they had purchased with a friend, which was uh, another crumbling ruin, which became the French Laundry. So they built that and ran that for 16 years, I don't know, maybe longer than that. Um, and as they were going through that process, we all worked there, helped to build the building. All of us participated at different points in our lives. But at some point, my parents realized that they were not going to want to do it forever. My mom's one of those ones who always wants to leave the party early while things are really at a high point. And so unofficially, the French Laundry was put on the market. And for years, my parents searched for someone who was who wanted to buy it, who would continue it in the spirit that they had had established. And that didn't happen until um, 1995, I guess. We finally found um, Thomas Keller as a buyer, and he was as passionate about the place as my parents. His vision is a little different. He's much more ambitious than my parents ever were. And we were able to um, sell the French Laundry. In the meantime, looking ahead, my parents had, um, we had entered a conversation with my husband and myself, my and my brother had been heading north and thinking, well, maybe we could be a little far north, uh, farther north out of this sort of Napa Valley scene. And we had discovered Anderson Valley. So at some point, my parents who loved a vacation at Sea Ranch and over on the coast, uh, my dad was always very interested in architecture and that whole complex um, really they, is something that they followed. And one time when they were over there, we suggested that they go check out Anderson Valley, which they did. And they spent their month, uh, we were back at the restaurant holding that together, uh, me and my siblings. And um, they spent that time when they were, my mom was supposed to be thinking about writing a cookbook. They had a month. They third day they were over there, they drove over to Anderson Valley and just fell in love with it and spent immediately went to a realtor and right away found the apple farm and very rundown condition. And they called us up in, at home and, and, and we were living in St. Helena at the time and said, um, well, do you guys want to be apple farmers? And we were like, yes, when can we go? So that's how we got here. Uh, we, you know, bought this place by the seat of our pants. We couldn't afford it at the time. We still probably can't afford it, but we've been here for 35 years. And, um, you know, we're, we just make our way as best we can. Brought our talents, everything we knew about the restaurant business. We were able to transfer our business clientele from the restaurant businesses we'd been involved in to the farm. And what we knew was the restaurant hospitality business. So with the farming as a backdrop, 
Um, we, our goal was to do maybe a bed and breakfast, maybe a cooking school. We didn't know. And at first, when we still had the restaurant, there was enough, enough cash flow for Tim and myself and our two um, little ones to move here and start to try to uh, bring the property back to life, which it was very run down. So we had to tear down buildings. You know, we did a lot of burning and purging and chainsaw pruning in the orchard so we could get the tractor down the rows. We'd done a lot of gardening but um, and branch caretaking sort of thing, but we were not farmers. But we had an apple farm next door that was willing to mentor us, even though um, they're, they were very chemical-based. Um, so there, there were a lot of, you know, grim reality. You know, every year we moved, when we moved here, at the end of the year, we'd go, oh, my God, can we do this? You know, are we going to lose it? How, how is this going to work? And one of the big problems was the spray program that was in place for apples at the time. And we had two little kids and the orchard came right up to our, our house, you know, 20 feet away, if that. And when the neighbor who we contracted to spray for us, using his spray program, what he was doing at the time, we had chemicals dripping down our windows. So that horrified us. And we felt, you know, we had, may had made a big mistake. So we cordoned off an area around our house and another kind of a separate section of the orchard that we could experiment with organic, which, you know, was the way that we were gardening already, but gardening, not farming. So, so that's how yeah. we started with the whole organic thing. How long did it take you to realize that organic was the way to go? And Oh, there was no question <laughs> the first time we saw the neighbor spray yeah. and what that entailed. And we had two little kids and it's just like, can we let them go outside? You know, yeah. whoa, what are we going to do here? Yeah, We want to live here. The reason we moved here is to live here was not to become apple farmers where, you know, mostly, you know, people farm. They don't necessarily live in the middle of the trees, but mm -hmm. our vision was to live here. Yes, and from a just just a strictly a business standpoint, how did that go? I mean, reduced inputs, higher prices for your apples. Well, well, it's not a sudden thing, and we knew the organic market was a fledgling kind of a thing at the time. And you mm -hmm. know, most people associated organic fruit with small and ugly, <laughs> um, small, ugly, and high priced. So, you know, trying to see if we could grow a quality apple we'd been in the restaurant business so we knew what we wanted to see in the box you know at the other end and uh that was our criteria and so then just trying to figure out you know and start to do research look at organic certification that's a three-year path so nothing happens very fast the first year after you sign up for organics you're in transition the second year you may be certified organic by the state rules third year if it all goes well then you can be certified organic we were with ccof california certified organic farmers at the beginning for a long time and and my husband tim um, got very involved with that organization which at the time was very small it was farmers inspecting each other mm -hmm. and over time the organization had to grow with the market and Tim said I had to start going to inspector trainings and it just got more and more technical. And especially as they started bringing in products 
and meatpacking, you know, it just got way beyond farmers being able to inspect each other. And with that growth, you know, we were just not as comfortable. We were still trying to farm, so we didn't really have time. Most inspectors these days may have been farmers, but they are no longer farmers because they don't have time. It's too much of a a learning curve to stay abreast of Mm -hmm. uh, what needs to be done to inspect farms. So I would love to talk more about just that. Um, We're going to take a quick music break here. And in just a moment, we will be back with Karen Bates of Philo Apple Farm. This is Heartstock, and I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Thanks for listening. This is Heartstock Radio, and we're with Karen Bates of the Philo Apple Farm. We were just talking about the decision to go organic, and um, I'm I'm wondering how all that has panned out for you. I mean, organics are becoming, you know, from my perspective, you know, being a consumer of organics, it's it's huge. Any regrets about going organic? Oh no, uh, not at all. And you know, and 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 the the only thing is that you know, by being organic, you are setting yourself up for you know a lot of hoops, a lot of regulation. That you know, the paperwork is very onerous, and it is also expensive. And my husband spent years battling this whole idea of you know the whole organic certification becoming such a corporate thing um, when it started out to be so grassroots and was even instrumental in starting a small, more grassroots organization here within the county. And the problem is that the small farmers kept getting left behind. And we're really pretty small farmers in the scheme of things. So our goal was always to sell as much of our our fresh product and processed product as close to home as possible. That's kind of our our vision, our mission. And that's the most profitable thing. But the other thing that happens is that the communication, you're much closer to your customer in that way. And organic certification tends to be less important uh, because you have a direct relationship and trust with your customer. So... You know, it's a it's a balancing act. Uh, we did go with biodynamics at some point, and partly because we were kind of fed up with what what was happening with CCOF and some of the other big organic certifiers that really had turned it into a whole bureaucracy. It wasn't their fault; they were trying to grow with the movement. But like I said, the little farmers got left behind. And so biodynamics sort of gave us a framework of, you know, looking at the farm as a whole and really uh, 
almost impossible goal of producing as much on farm as you, as possible and having as little off farm input. And if you use that as a guideline, it kind of helps to direct um, your the path that you take. It's just like how can we close this loop? You know, even though we know we never can. If we have to make a decision, we make a decision that helps us close the loop so that the farm is sustainable. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a very helpful thing in terms of a framework to work within and a long-range goal. Can you explain to our listeners, in my mind, biodynamics is much more, it's a much broader, more inclusive approach than strictly being organic. Is is this true? Can you clarify for us the difference between strictly organic and biodyna- biodynamic? Well, organic, uh, sometimes, or a lot of times these days, we're just substituting organically allowed ingredients for chemical inputs. In other words, we're just putting a Band-Aid on the problem. We have a problem it's just like taking medication instead of looking at the root cause of a problem. So with biodynamics, you're looking for balance. And, you know, one of one of my favorite ways to describe biodynamics, and, and this is a Confucius saying that I heard one time, that said the best fertilizer for the farm is the footsteps of the farmer. So that's being super close to your farm and understanding or trying to understand how to create balance and it's very, very difficult. Our farm is so small and variable, and that we have five different sections of orchard. That one is, you know, we have bottomland with deep silt, and we have some rocky areas, and then we have some other areas that just drain too well. And different types of, we have 80 different varieties of apples. There are thousands. Each tree has its own you know, special place. Some do really well in the bottoms and other ones want to be up on a a drier hillside. So it's almost an impossible set of variables. And in one lifetime, you're never going to get there. But that's what makes it so exciting. My husband is still so excited about apples, which is really his domain. I do more of the overall management of the property, the buildings, the agritourism uh, that we have created here so that he can concentrate on the farming. And, you know, some years we put a lot of energy in it and maybe make some changes, but then you kind of have to ride with those for a while to even see if they're going to work because everything takes so long. Uh, The return when you have these big trees, you know, you can't just put in an input and know next year, next season, if it's had an effect, it maybe take several years. So it's it's kind of, you know, the Japanese, they say, you know, when they think about things, they think in terms of 100-year cycles. And, you know, we here in the U.S. are, you know, into immediate gratification, which chemical farming can give you. So we're really looking at a much bigger picture. And it's endlessly fascinating. Mm-hmm. I really want to take some time to talk about water. How is current climate changes that you're experiencing there in California, including uh, water shortages, uh, increased fires, how is this impacting your farm? And have in the time that you've been there, 
Uh, have you see, seen things change? Well, we've seen quite a few cycles. And I have to say that, you know, I do believe in climate change uh, very strongly and that we need to do absolutely everything we can to try to slow it down, turning it around. I don't even know if it's possible at this point. However, for us here, we've seen long periods of drought and we've also seen floods that floods that came through our land and really just deposited silt and it was a mess. But we've also, a few years ago, had a loss of several acres in an area that, you know, our farm is not really, was, we didn't feel susceptible. We'd walk the river. We didn't really have any problem areas, no erosion. We had uh, trees and, and um, wildland all along the edge of the orchard, which we had just allowed to get thicker and thicker. Anyway, it started to peel away, and we lost several acres of orchard and, and riparian. Our well ended up on the other side of the channel. Our river is only fed by rains during the rainy season, and that is like maybe October through May, possibly once in a while we get a rain in June. But when it comes, it comes really hard. It can be 120 inches up on the ridges above us, and we are in that watershed. So it's super dramatic. The river comes way up, runs out to the ocean, goes way down very quickly. But it creates a, a big mess. But this last year, we had 20 inches here on the valley floor. And, you know, we usually range from 20 to over 70 inches here on the valley floor. And last year was the lowest rainfall we've ever seen. However, we've had the biggest swimming hole we've ever seen. So it's really hard to understand water. We irrigate five days a week out of the orchard, out of the um, river. We have riparian, historical riparian rights, and that is the only way that we can keep this orchard alive. We, we are planting, uh, we're not using dwarf rootstock because they take, uh, they're so shallow rooted, we're going back to more standard or at least the, the mid-range rootstock where the roots are deeper so that if we have a real, uh, a real bad drought year and we aren't able to water, that the trees can at least survive. This was a very rough year for apples. We have the smallest, ugliest apples we've ever had. Um, and there was just, there's no labor. We're, it was questionable whether there was an, enough water. You know, if we don't water, we don't get size and we have nothing to sell. So um, <laughs> you, all you can do is just enter into the year. You know, luckily we get to start over again every year. And, you know, every year we're full of hope. And we just have to go with the flow. This year was, you know, we're, we, we could still be irrigating right now. There is water in the river. Um, it's very low. But historically, it always is at this time of year. There's a lot of water underground. There's a lot of sand and gravel. When you realize that this river, the only way it can flow is from springs, there is no runoff. That's one of the things, you know, there's no snowpack. So it, the fact that there's a river running at all is kind of a miracle. Um, so, you know, that's one of the things that is really rough here. You know, if I could change anything, I would have a nice snowpack mountain somewhere nearby and a uh, beautiful water running all season that I didn't have to worry about <laughs> Are uh, you, because we do worry about it. Yeah. The, wa the water, I would imagine as there are more and more vineyards in Anderson Valley, water issues 
are... Hmm. Well, we're pretty what? much vineyarded it out. I mean, there's not much more room on the valley floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the whole pot growing situation is also taking a lot of water from small creeks up in the hills usually, which then prevents it from running down into the main flow. And, of course, none of that, I mean, in theory, there's regulations for it. But, you know, most of most of what's happening is, is not regulated at this point. Mm-hmm. Unlicensed cannabis growers. Right. Yeah, we did a sh- right. kind of a sh- big show on that too mm-hmm. up in Soham. So I'm wondering are you no-till and um how well, do you Well, we start mm-hmm. well, we we keep a cover on the orchard. Um we you know, over the years we've experimented with different things. Here on the valley floor, traditionally people um, mowed and irrigated up on the ridges around us. Uh, we're more typically dry farm, or they just don't have any water, and so they would till um, to create a dust mulch during the summer, which it just breaks the capillary action and allows the trees to uh, preserve the moisture that they do have in the ground. But as far as a commercial farming operation, you know they only get a bumper crop, you know every. Uh, it could be anywhere from two to ten years before they have a real bumper crop. You can't count, you can't farm it as actively. Mm-hmm. It's mostly like they make juice or sell it to the cannery when there is a crop, and in between, they don't worry about it. Um, so we're we're kind of coming to the end of our time, and uh-huh. um, I was hoping we could share with the listeners two things. One is. What lays ahead and how listeners might also find and reach you? Well, as far as our farm is concerned, what we are doing is kind of pulling inward a little bit more. We've always been kind of a agritourism destination for local people, and we've the farm has been a very open place. We are pulling back a little bit more because we're starting to feel like we're living in a fishbowl. And uh, our our daughter and, and her husband are living on the property. My nephew has built a house. My two brothers have built a home all out in the orchard. And just for quality of life, we are keeping our um, public business more up near the front of the property, which includes our four transient units for overnight guests and our farm stand. And if it's not during COVID, then we also do some interactive cooking weekends. So those things we'll continue to do. We're trying to figure out a way to create balance to maintain our lifestyle and also to have the farm be financially stable. Mm -hmm. And how do listeners find you, Karen? Well, our website has a lot of information. So it's philoapplefarm.com and that's P-H-I-L-O applefarm.com. Really, that's the best way to find out what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. And your your cookbook, can folks find and purchase that on your website? Uh, not yet. My mom is 88. We've been in the process of <laughs> pulling this book project together for probably 10 years. But now it is placed with Chronicle Books. And it looks like uh, some t- it'll come out sometime in 2021. It's, you know, most of the... Most of the work is the writing is done, the photography is done, mm-hmm. the layout is happening right now. Exciting. Um, so it's, it's coming. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> this is Hardstock Radio, and we've been speaking with Karen Bates of Philo Apple Farm. Thanks again, Karen, for sharing your story. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening. Mm, yes, indeed. And we shall see you next week. 
Peace. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our live programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. As I went walking, I saw a sign there, and on the sign it said, No trespassing, but on the other side.